No tenemos, este, 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 si nosotros tenemos este, este, conservado nuestro bosque, ¿no? This is Ilson Lopez. He's the president of Belgium. Not the European country, but the indigenous village in the district of Tawamanu in the Peruvian state of Madre de Dios at the western edge of the Amazon forest. Behind him, is the Acre River, which separates us from Brazil. It's narrow at this point, maybe 30 meters across, and its water is ugly and yellow. But cross over and you're stepping back in time, because the 11 or so villages on that side of the river have no contact with the outside world, at least not formally. Little is known about the people on that side of the river but they've encountered Lopez's people intermittently over the decades. And they've had skirmishes with drug traffickers and loggers too. Indigenous bows and arrows holding their own against invasive guns and bullets. But Lopez figures the mysterious, isolated people on the other side of the river mostly live the way they have for hundreds of years and the way his own people did until the early 1920s. That's when Europeans arrived with guns, machetes, and diseases like measles, against which these isolated people had no immunity. Lopez's grandparents fought, got sick, died in mass, and eventually surrendered. They belong to the Jine people, who occupy villages scattered from here all the way to Cusco, the capital of the old Incan Empire, about 500 kilometers southwest of here. Before the Europeans came, the Jine lived in harmony with the forest, hunting, gathering, and nurturing the fruit-bearing trees. But over the last century, they found themselves squeezed into smaller and smaller, more isolated territories, and increasingly dependent on the market economy. The members of this particular community began tapping the rubber trees and selling balls of latex to a European trader named Justo Bezada who told them that he came from a country called Belgium, and thus was the indigenous village of Belgium, or Belgica in Spanish, born. Back in the day, he says, traders would come to Belgica and work with us to extract latex from rubber trees, and we'd roll it into a big ball, and they would take it on a plane to Lima. But that business started slowing down in the 1970s, and we've been struggling ever since. Gradually, they turned to this. Occasionally at first, because this area is so remote, but then more often, as the roads came, bringing logging trucks and loggers seeking lucrative cedar and mahogany. In 2002, the people of Belgica won demarcation of their territory, and with it, the legal right to earn income from its products. They divided the territory into zones for commercial activities like rubber tapping and ecotourism, and pure conservation for traditional hunting and fishing. But how did they deal with the logging? After all, indigenous people are guardians of the forest, 
They don't chop trees. They save them. Right? Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question I address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine that impact through the lens of loggers, long considered the enemies of the forest, even though we all use their products in our sofas, in our writing pads, and in our very houses. We need wood and we need paper, but how can we get them without destroying the forests? Before diving into the answer, I'd like to thank the Environmental Defense Fund, which is covering my production costs and time, as well as Climate Advisors, which covered my travel, and Germany's Deutsche Welle Radio, which kindly commissioned a shorter version of today's show for their excellent program, Living Planet, a program I highly recommend. Finally, of course, my employer, Forest Trends, which makes everything I do possible. Five hundred years ago, the Jinné people were ruled by the Incan Empire, which spread over two million square kilometers and somehow functioned without money or markets. Today, they're scattered across Peru in villages like Belgica. Some of the Jinné choose to avoid contact with the market economy, but the people of Belgica didn't really have a choice in the matter. Initially, they were tricked into servitude by rubber barons, but they continued tapping rubber of their own accord to earn cash income, because it was something they could do without destroying the forest. As the rubber trade dwindled, however, the people of Belgica gradually, grudgingly, started selling trees to loggers. They only designated a portion of their land for logging, but they didn't really understand the practice or the business at first. We didn't have any capacity to do the extraction right, says Lopez. So at first we operated in the black market, basically just letting loggers into the territory and getting paid for it. But the local authorities came to us and said, you're not doing this right. And that's when we learned about certification. Specifically, certification under the Forest Stewardship Council, or FFC. You know those little green labels you see on cabinets and tables and boxes of paper? The left side looks like a check mark, the right side looks like a tree. Environmental NGOs like WWF created the Forest Stewardship Council in 1993, together with some forward-thinking timber companies, after the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro failed to deliver a real global compact. (music) 
The idea was to create some sort of standard for sustainably harvested timber, or at least give the good guys a boost, a standard based on procedures that experts agreed would make it possible to extract valuable trees without destroying the forest, as well as auditing procedures to make sure the practices were being followed, and then labeling so consumers would know the difference and hopefully pay extra for the good stuff. At the same time that this was happening, indigenous people all across the Amazon were creating so-called life plans, or planes de vida, which are something like indigenous constitutions. The life plan is a document, says Lopez, or an exercise that sets out our vision of where we want to go and helps us understand how to get there or what kind of projects we can develop. And FSC certification became one of the pillars of our life plan because it was a way that we could improve productivity while saving the forest. We also included rubber tapping in our life plan and the forest of the children, which is our term for the conservation area. This district, Tawamanu, is something of a sustainability hotspot, thanks in part to the Cordoza family, who settled here more than a half century ago and have become major landowners and political leaders, as well as proponents of sustainable development. It was one of the Cordozas who persuaded the people of Belgica to join FSC. And it was a Cordoza company that helped the Belgicans create and execute the sustainable logging plan needed to earn FSC certification. That meant meeting the FSC's 10 principles, ranging from hiring camioneros, or members of the community, to meeting ever-evolving standards for good land management and equitable community relations. That got the ball rolling, but Lopez says the Cordozas took too big a commission, so the Belgica ruling council switched to a second company, and then a third. Today, says Lopez, the people of Belgica get 80 cents on the dollar for every ton of timber extracted from their land. And the current partner, a company called Maderia, has never missed a payment or even been late. So, how does FSC certification work? You can find the 10 principles online, and you can also find audit reports published by independent verifiers. But there's nothing like being there to get a feel for how this stuff works. Logistically, the Belgica concession is pretty hard to reach from the village itself. But this being Tawamanu, there were other concessions nearby. And WWF got us into the neighboring one called Mareakre, which spreads out over 220,000 hectares, about four times the size of the entire Belgica territory, and almost seven times the size of the Belgica forestry concession. Mata Acre was cobbled together by a guy named Erasmo Wong, who made a fortune building up Peru's largest chain of supermarkets. He then sold the company and devoted his life to philanthropy and sustainable agriculture. Right, like they said, okay, we're going to go to the sustainable management, uh, to the timber business. We want to do it in the right way. Josefina Brania runs WWF's Forest and Climate Program. We are now in the uh, Maderacre campsite for this year. 
they rotate the campsite uh, on an annual basis depending on the plot that they are um, managing. Um, this concession has 20 plots, each of them has 11,000 hectares, uh, so that means that every year they manage 11,000 hectares. So um, because they need people need to be close to to do the management as you saw we just drove 110 kilometers to get here through the concession so inside the concession it's huge so people instead of commuting every day because it's impossible they said come here and that's where they sleep and eat and live and uh, it's like a giant hut with a bunch of hammocks in it so everyone it's a communal hammock the top their, yep. their bunk beds the bottom is a bed and the top is a is a hammock yep Exactly. That's where they live. That's where they uh, eat, and they, that's where they spend most of the time. I've never been to an FSC certified forestry concession before, but I have been to the opposite: illegal logging operations on indigenous territories in Brazil, and this is completely different. In the other operations I visited, you see absolute destruction: roads and gashes in the ground running off in all directions, where loggers blundered through hundreds of non-timber trees many of them fruit trees, to chop one cedar or mahogany. Those places look like moonscapes, while this one looks like, well, a forest. The biodiversity seems to be uh, unperturbed. Um, jaguar population is thriving. Uh, the, the regional uh, supervisor of Maderacre uh, told us that in, a, in the best year he has been here, he saw up to 20 jaguars. Uh, this year he has only seen once uh, a jaguar, uh, but that doesn't mean, I mean, it seems like the population is healthy. The WF has been partnering up with Maderacre to put uh, camera uh, traps in all uh, the concession to monitor the biodiversity, and we've seen population of jaguar, uh, monkeys, um, small, uh, how would you say, tapir? Tap yeah, yeah, tapir. ¿Qué otros animales hay, Alonso? Well, lots of birds. Aguti, which is this like Quati? No. No, este le dicen este oso hormiguero. Ah yeah, the the anteater. There are anteaters, there's lots slots, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of biodiversity. As you could see, uh, this area is very prone, it's very good for um, natural regeneration. Uh, because of the climatic conditions, but also because of the impact logging, reduced impact logging technique that they use. So that uh, allows for biodiversity to thrive uh, while there's still sustainable forest management. Eh, mira, es muy similar a lo que ha ocurrido acá, ¿no? Si has visto aquí el, el árbol. Fairman Zapatapilco oversees all extractive activities in the concession. Se hace un poco lo que explicaba el talador temprano, que es uno evaluar la dirección de caída natural. We have just begun to work this 11,000 hectare plot, he says, and we start with remote sensing, using drones to find the ones that are tall and thick enough to chop, and then mapping out routes to them, and finally sending out teams to see if the tree that we want to chop will hurt other trees when it falls. We separate the trees into different categories. Some are going to have high conservation value, meaning they are not to be destroyed, while others are going to have high commercial value, and some will simply be immature, to be harvested when we return to this plot in 20 years. If there are seedlings or high conservation trees nearby, we map out a way to cut the tree so it falls where no seedlings or high conservation trees are. But if that's not possible, 
we make a note of that and move on to the next tree. We come to a massive mahogany that's passed all of these tests. It's about 70 years old, two meters in diameter, six and a half meters around, but a lot wider at the base, and 30 meters, or about 10 stories high. It branches out about 18 meters up, so only the first six stories can be used for wood. Put another way, it's 40 tons of biomass, which means 20 tons of carbon, which will become 73 tons of carbon dioxide if the tree burns or decays and mixes with oxygen in the air. That's 14 times as much greenhouse gas as the average passenger car emits in a whole year of operation. About 40% of the tree will end up in flooring and furniture, which locks up 30 tons of that carbon dioxide. But what about the other 44 tons? That's almost nine cars worth. Nelson Kroll is Mata Acre's forestry manager. El desperdicio... Some of it will be used as biofuel for our ovens, he says. We use those to dry out the trees, but we're also working on a deal with a local farm which wants to use it for mulch and compost. That's good for the climate, because healthy soils absorb carbon as well as nitrogen and hydrogen, reducing levels of carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane, three powerful greenhouse gases. In fact, a landmark study published in 2016 showed that we can get 37% of the way to meeting the Paris Agreement's two-degree target just by improving the way we manage forests, farms, and fields. That study, called Natural Climate Solutions, identified 20 specific pathways to doing that, one of which is sustainable forest management, which is what FSC is all about, and another of which is improving soils. These natural climate solutions deliver more than one-third of the mitigation needed to meet the climate challenge, but they get just 3% of dedicated climate finance and 1% of climate-related media coverage. Some of the workers are clearing away shrubs at the base of the tree. Because of the slope, the tree will fall towards the slope. But sometimes the tree kicks, uh, depending on the, how the roots are, and sometimes when it kicks, it will come that direction. So that's why we need to be... Uh, okay, so we can stay here, but when he says... Uh, now we need to just leave. Traten de, yo sé que todos son periodistas y están a la a la casa de la mejor toma para que no se vayan a estorbar entre ustedes. These mahoganies spread out at the base, like an elephant's foot, or more like a duck's foot. And the worker doesn't cut the tree straight across, but instead he's injecting his saw into the tree vertically, straight up and down, building kind of a wall of wood on three sides of the foot, 
So these 40 tons will fall where he wants them to. After it lands, workers begin chopping it and marking it. So we're standing here, it's about 20 of these massive tree trunks, each one about 20 tons of wood. And each is marked with uh, alphanumeric code. Here's Fermin Zapanopilco again. The numbers that you see on the trunks are the numbers that we have assigned to this individual tree in the forest inventory, he says. Then you see letters, A, B, and C. That corresponds to the section of the trunk. A is the bottom, B is the middle, and C is the top. The letters in the alphanumeric code identify Mata Acre as a concession, and the numbers identify the plot within the concession, which is also the vintage or year that we harvested it, because we work specific plots each year. We mark and inventory them like this, so that if a truck is stopped in the highway, the driver can show where it came from. So until very recently, it was, this was only for certified uh, concessions, but now it's, uh, it's uh, required for everybody, because otherwise you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to trace. So if you get stopped in the highway and you show your trees, how can you explain where they're coming from? So now everybody has to do it. Uh, so, but, but for the certified um, concessions, is even from before, they have to do it. This traceability issue is huge because the European Union and the United States have both banned the import of illegally harvested timber. As a result, exporters are supposed to trace their timber to legally sanctioned concessions. That doesn't, however, always happen. A 2014 analysis by my employer, Forest Trends, for example, looked at tropical deforestation from 2001 through 2012. It found that agriculture caused most deforestation, and half of that agriculture-related deforestation took place illegally. The laws, in other words, are fine, but they're not being enforced. That same year, a global coalition of governments, corporations, NGOs, and indigenous people's organizations endorsed something called the New York Declaration on Forests, or NYDF, which is a pledge to end forest loss by the year 2030. The NYDF is broken into 10 goals, the 10th of which is to improve forest governance, to make sure that laws not only exist, but are being followed. In 2016, a coalition of environmental think tanks, including, again, Forest Trends, decided to start tracking progress towards achieving these goals, and they formed a coalition called NYDF Assessment Partners. Now, NYDF Assessment Partners just published their updated findings on progress towards goal number 10, and it's called Improving Governance to Protect Forests. And they found not much. Law enforcement has gotten a bit better since 2014, and traceability has also improved. But neither have improved enough to save our forests, and average deforestation rates have actually increased 42% since the NYDF was signed. Countries like Peru, which has a sketchy history on this front, are trying to boost exports by improving enforcement, although the effectiveness of that is limited too
because countries like China don't put much effort into verifying legality of imports. Thanks to FSC's auditing procedures, you can be pretty sure that FSC certified timber was legally harvested. But being legal is just one of the FSC principles. Certified timber should, in theory, get a higher price in the market. But does it? Nelson Kroll again. It costs us about 35% more to do FSC certification as opposed to just doing what the law requires, he says. But the market doesn't really pay a premium. Or if it does, it's 5% at most. Fortunately, he told me later, the Wong family has enough money and enough scruples to stick with FSC. They're making a profit, and a good one. But smaller landowners, or greedier ones, won't do FSC unless it's worth their while. The people of Belgica do FSC because of their cultural attachment to the forest. It basically provides a structured way of implementing their life plan. And, says Lopez, it brought them to their current partner, Maderia, a company that does seem intent on paying a fair price, something he rarely encountered in the black market. Our income is up 50% since we adopted the FSC certification, he says, but it's still not enough to pay for schools and health care. The FSC process, however, helped us improve our life plan because it forced us to think about our resources and our priorities in a structured way and helped us to understand the contribution that we can make in the effort to slow climate change. If every forestry concession on the planet worked the way these two do, we'd have a fighting chance of meeting the climate challenge. But the district of Taumahu is an outlier, with a government willing to promote sustainable forestry and a citizenry willing to embrace it. It seems like uh, Tawamanu is uh, a place where all the stars align because of the climatic conditions, because of the geography and because of the people are not like against uh, sustainable forest management. They are actually committed in sustainability. They have this conscious uh, desire to live a better future for their children. So that's why 70% of all the certified areas in Peru are in Tawamanu. Tawamanu is one little district in one Peruvian state, but it's thriving and sustainable forestry is just one reason why. In future episodes, we'll meet the Cordozas and see how other people in this district are using natural climate solutions to grow their economy and slow climate change. If you want those episodes sooner rather than later, then you can help me by sharing Bionic Planet with friends. And you can give me a solid five-star review on iTunes, TuneIn, or wherever you access me. That helps us all, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get, and the more ears I get, the more brains I reach. Today's show was made possible in part by Germany's Deutsche Welle Radio, which commissioned a small segment for an episode of their program, Living Planet, and graciously agreed to let me recycle some of that audio for this show. Also, the Environmental Defense Fund, which came up with funding which made it possible for me to take the time needed to develop this into a long and hopefully entertaining feature. And of course, WWF, which arranged the interviews that you heard today, and my own employer, Forest Trends, which makes everything I do possible. For the most part, however, I'm listener-supported. And if you like what you hear, you can support me for as little as $1 per month at bionic-planet.com 
or patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Once again, that's bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. And in that one, there's no dots or dashes. I've set the Patreon page up so that you can support me per episode, but with a monthly cap. I'm also open to sponsorship and advertising if the right partner comes along. If you're part of an NGO or an ethical business that wants to reach people who are interested in solutions, reach out to me and we'll see what we can do. Also, get ready for a barrage of shorter episodes coming to you from Katowice, Poland, where I'll be covering year-end climate talks from December 3rd through the 14th. I do hope to get a few more episodes out before then, so keep checking back. Until then, I'm Steve Zwick, coming to you this week from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Thanks for listening.